Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. This past week, um, last week, I attended my first conference since COVID began. It was an interesting experience, um, and normally I, I've come to a point in my life where I don't jump at every conference that comes out, but I felt a real sense of God's calling to be at this conference. And I couldn't understand exactly why. I mean, intellectually, yes, I knew. It's an important topic. But I felt this compulsion to be at this conference. It, the conference is called the Amplify Outreach Conference. And I've known about it for some time. Some of my friends have spoken at it. It takes place at Wheaton. But I've never felt compelled to go before. And it's so close. But this year I went. And it was good. It was all about evangelism and disciple-making, uh, great topics. And it was pretty good the whole time. But I was like, God, I, I still haven't heard or experienced the thing which I felt like you were setting apart for me that I felt so convicted to come. And then the second to the last session, like God grabbed me, and I understood why I'd come. A woman named Anne Voskamp, who hails from, I think, British Columbia and Canada. She gave a talk called Transformative Hospitality. I don't know if you're familiar with Anne Voskamp. The book she writes feels sort of like, uh, you know, the, the Christian Martha Stewart type book. Um, her family, she has seven kids. They, are, they all look like they're all models. And it looks like that sort of uh, Stepford Wives type picture of the perfect evangelical family. And so I didn't know what to expect when I saw transformative hospitality. I didn't know if she was going to tell me how to decorate my house to make sure it's welcoming. or What was this going to be about? And I'll be very honest with you. In my flesh, I saw the whole set of speakers and the topics. And this was not a session I was particularly looking forward to. Here's a little secret. When you get to be a veteran pastor, sometimes you don't go to every session. Sometimes you hang out in the quad or go off campus and get coffee and donuts on the sessions you're not really jazzed about. I was going to blow this one off, and I stayed. And what I heard really blew me away, and it's going to mark me for a really long time. It sparked a week of pretty furious study and reflection. It's still kind of messing with me. And, uh, you know, it's really nice to be nearly 54 and still... Realizing I can be challenged, touched deeply, cut to the heart by God about some aspect of my faith that I desperately still need to grow up in. It gave rise to this sermon, and I'm not going to just give you her talk. I think that would be um, lazy and cheating, but it's also her talk. It's, it's the thing that I think it's her right to say. But some of the things she said are going to find their way into this message and are so important to me that I want to share them with you uh, as a gift. Back in April of 2018, I first saw this statue, the sculpture. I thought it was a real person at first, so I walked over kind of concerned. And then as I got closer, it was in Indianapolis. Uh, the Thrive Pastors Conference was happening. And uh, so all the Thrive Pastors from here, ICC, and one tribe in Flagstaff. And back then, we also had a guy named Thomas Kim with us, who was doing a house church in the Pilsen neighborhood. So we were all loaded up in a couple vans, and we were driving to Louisville to attend a conference. And we stopped in Indianapolis to grab lunch. And we just walked around the area, and I saw the sculpture, and I'm like, what is that? And then I realized it was a statue, and it was called Homeless Jesus. It's a statue or sculpture made by a Canadian artist named Timothy Schmaltz. He's a devout Catholic, and he made this to be provocative. When he first made the, the sculpture, he offered it to a couple of churches, and they declined. So he eventually installed the first one at Regis College. That's the Jesuit School of Theology up at the University of Toronto. But since then, more than 100 copies of this have been installed all over the world. The one I saw was right behind uh, a Methodist Episcopal church in Indianapolis. And now there's one in Capernaum where Jesus based so much of his earthly ministry when he was among us in flesh. It's on my bucket list. It's, it's right here. I, I hope one day 
I'll get to travel and see that statue. And I'm going to be honest with you. Um, I had mixed feelings when I first saw that statue. I know Jesus was homeless during his earthly ministry years. I know that intellectually. But the truth is that that prone, helpless, impoverished Jesus with a blanket just sort of carelessly draped over his head. I couldn't even see his face really. You only know it's Jesus because there's holes in the feet. And it's just not the way I picture Jesus. When I pray with my eyes closed, I'm visual, so I tend to picture Jesus a certain way. And I realize that I picture Jesus quite often as whole, clean, triumphant, powerful. Those are all things that are true of Jesus. But the picture I have of Jesus rejects this picture of some homeless guy lying discarded on a bench and forgotten. And I just kept thinking, is that really Jesus? See, if we're going to follow Jesus, we've got to be able to locate him in our lives. I don't know what following Jesus means to you, but if we take it seriously, that means that we've got to be able to locate him in our actual lives. And where he's taking us, we've got to be able to go with him, follow to approach where he is. And I guess the question that this statue provokes for me, the thing that um, Ann Voskamp's talk provoked in me is, how do I locate Jesus? Where is he in my life? Where do I see him show up? What does he look like in my world? Probably like most of you, I tend to look for Jesus in appointed times and places, places that I've labeled sacred. So I look for him here. I prepare all week. I, I pray. I look forward to this time with you at church, believing that God's supposed to meet with us, and he so often does. I expect that I will meet with God often around a table, usually my own table at home, where my family, the ones I love the most in this world, are gathered around me, and we're sharing a meal together. There's places in my life where I like to have my quiet devotions with God. And those are sacred times and places. And I expect to see God there. But the statue reminds me that sometimes, and maybe most often, Jesus appears in our lives in an unexpected form, in a place we would not recognize him to be. Matthew chapter 25 contains a really familiar passage about the separation of the sheep and the goats. You probably are familiar with it if you've grown up in the church. And it serves as the inspiration for this sculpture. And I want to read for you what it says, because these are the words of Jesus. And one of the things Jesus is saying is that the evidence of belonging to him and remember, this is how he's going to separate who's with me and who's apart from me, who's not included in my people. And the, the shocking thing, which we generally have blown off, is he says, here's one of the distinguishing marks between the sheep who will stay with Christ and the goats who will depart from him. It's not the way we treated our friends and our family, but it's the way we treated the needy stranger in front of us. Jesus says, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me into your home. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you cared for me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink, or a stranger and show you hospitality, or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it 
to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you are doing it to me. I've preached on this before. I've read this passage like a hundred times in my life. And I don't know why, but just this past week, God smacked me deep, deep, deep with what this means. I've been praying all week that he'll touch you in the same way. You know, when we really love someone... What we long to do is somehow tangibly touch them, reach out, make that love felt. It's one of the reasons why when someone dies, there's such grieving because I know that the person lives on in my memory, in my photos, in my heart, but I'll never be able to hug them until the day of the Lord comes. I won't be able to touch them, show them, tell them. So when we truly love someone... There's this longing to make that love felt in a tangible way, to be able to express it. Sometimes, maybe too often, loving God feels so indirect and impersonal. I've struggled for so much of my life feeling the touch of God when we take communion. I know theologically everything that I'm supposed to understand about the meaning and symbolism of communion But it's only a handful of times in my life that I've been deeply emotionally touched by taking the Lord's Supper. I'm not sure what it is, but something about the whole business of being a Christian in America and in this world feels so like six steps removed from the one who I want to touch me and I want to touch. And the thing that is so revolutionary that Jesus says here is if you feel that way towards him and you want to show some sort of tangible love to Jesus himself, then he declares to us that one of the most powerful and tangible ways we're going to do that is by touching the needy stranger who's standing right in front of us. This is something that goes far beyond donations. Donations are powerful expressions in a selfish, materialistic world. I'm not going to disparage the power spiritually of giving away things. Our church does this so well. I'm amazed at how quickly our church family responds to the tangible material needs of others. I don't ever want to look down on that at all. But the heart that Jesus is expressing in this teaching goes beyond the transfer of goods. It speaks to actually opening ourselves up to people. When I love someone and I bring them a gift for their birthday, I don't just go, here, I bought it for you. It's yours now. Enjoy it. I want to see their face. I want to be with them when they use it. I expect that the next time I go to lunch with them, they're going to wear the sweater I got them. I want to see it on you, man. I pictured it. I want to be a part of your story. I don't just want to transfer something to you. I want this to further bridge the gap that exists between me and you. And we love Jesus in one of the most direct and tangible ways when we love and touch the life of a needy stranger. When you look at Hebrews chapter 13, Hebrews chapter 13, by the way, is one of the most incredible chapters of Scripture. It opens up with these words. Listen to this. Keep on loving each other as brothers and sisters, but... Don't forget to show hospitality to strangers. For some who have done this have entertained angels without realizing it. In verse 1, the writer of Hebrews affirms that our first priority is to love our own brothers and sisters in Christ. That's something we tend to forget pretty quickly, especially when we have a chip on our shoulder and we see the failings and the shortcomings of our brothers and sisters. Haven't you ever been guilty of that, even with your own flesh and blood family? Like, you are the biggest hater of your own family. I hate us sometimes. 
I wish I had a different family. I wish I came from different. And we do that to each other. But, but just as we teach in the home, it's family first. The priority, if we're going to invite anyone into our lives, is to make sure that our home is a place of real love and safety. And so he affirms this. He says, don't stop this. Keep on loving your brothers and sisters. The word there is literally brother love. It's Philadelphia. It's where we get the name of the city. It's the Greek conjunction phila, which is rooted in love, and adelphia, which is rooted in the word brother. So he says, don't stop showing brotherly and sisterly love to your own family. If you stop doing that and you love everyone outside, it's not real. Because as soon as they become your family, you'll stop loving them too. So the real test of genuine love begins with, can you love your own brother and sister even in the midst of their shortcomings and imperfections? And he almost assumes that's happening anyway because who doesn't naturally love those who belong to them? In fact, Jesus goes as far as to say in John 13, 35, your love for one another, and he's specifically addressing Christians. He says, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. The way we treat each other in the church is a proof to the watching world that we follow Jesus and that God is our Father. So I don't want to pit one against the other. Brotherly and sisterly love remains a high, high priority in the church, and we still have to work at growing in this, don't we? You, you, can, you can interact with me. I just had the privilege of um, giving a, officiating a wedding yesterday where two-thirds of the, the people there were African-Americans, and they, I just loved the way they participated with me in the act of sharing God's word. I got riled up, man. It was just a wedding. I almost started preaching. Brotherly love and sisterly love still matters. But he says, in the midst of doing that, don't forget, and when he says don't forget, it's because it's so easy to forget, to show hospitality to strangers. That's another word rooted in filio, which is love, and it's the Greek word philiozenias. It means love of the stranger. So if Philadelphia is brother love, then philozenius is stranger love. And I love the way that sounds. It's stranger love. That's what we're called to grow in, is stranger love. The love of the stranger, which is the biblical word hospitality, whenever you see it, it's almost always in the, in the New Testament translating the Greek word philozenius, which means stranger love. It's the love for someone you don't know personally. I don't know you. I've traveled to parts of our country where that's a big deal. If you start talking to someone, they go, I don't know you. Stop talking to me like you're someone in my life. And you, you sense danger, right? Like you're not supposed to talk to people you don't know. That's sort of what prevails in America right now. And the call of Jesus Christ to us is to learn to love the one who I don't know at all yet. It's someone who has no legitimate claim over my life, my time, my resources. And yet, because of my relationship with Jesus, I'm deeply prompted in my heart to open up something of myself to this person. One of the reasons that this also is a proof of our discipleship is because it is not explainable by human nature. People don't open themselves up to strangers. No Jewish person could hear the words of Hebrews 13, 1 and 2 and not think immediately about Abraham in Genesis chapter 18. Abraham in Genesis chapter 18, it records a story where he finds three traveling pilgrims. They're just visiting, passing through, and he gives them unbelievable hospitality. He doesn't know who these people are, but he bows low, he shows humility, he, he basically acts like a servant, and he personally waits on them while they eat their food. Abraham, by this point, was a rich man, had many servants in his household, and yet he waits on them personally. 
And after showing all of this above and beyond hospitality, he finds out later in the story that they were actually angelic beings in disguise. Representatives of God sent among human beings to speak for him and to report to God what he's seeing. These three visitors in the Genesis account go from Abraham's household, full of good cheer and hospitality, and they go to the city of Sodom. You guys familiar with the city of Sodom? Uh, Everybody says, Las Vegas is the new Sodom. Sodom has come to be synonymous with any city that we associate with depravity and immorality and sin and all of that. And part of the reason is the story that follows. These three same visitors go to Sodom, and when they get there, they are attacked as they, they are a guest of Abraham's nephew, Lot. But while they're at his house, the men of the city pound on the doors and say, send those men out so that we might sleep with them. It's where we get the word sodomy. And as a result of this, this kind of sin, God destroys the city of Sodom. But what he tells, as he's speaking to these three visitors, God reveals that he had basically destined Sodom for destruction already. It wasn't just because of the bad welcome that they gave him, but because he saw in that city something so dead and offensive to him that he had already destined the city for destruction. A lot of modern, modern scholars look at that and go, well, the main reason is because of their sexual depravity, because men were demanding to sleep with these male visitors. And, you know, I mean, the reason we have the word sodomy is because it's come to be synonymous with same-sex kind of stuff. I think that's wrong. And here's the thing. When you read God's rebuke of Jerusalem through the prophet Ezekiel, later in Ezekiel 16.49, God himself comes right out and reveals, this was my real problem with Sodom. It wasn't the way they attacked my representatives. But he says to Jerusalem, as he's about to give them the worst rebuke, he goes, you think Sodom was bad, here's what Sodom did, but you're worse. Okay, so <laughs> you got to understand, this is the context of this rebuke through Ezekiel. And God says to the prophet Ezekiel, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. He leaves nothing to chance. He tells us. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. I mean, this just blew my mind. The sin which God condemns in Sodom was not just sexual depravity but because they had everything they needed and more, and yet it made them arrogant, callous, heartless toward those among them and outside of their city who had nothing. The true sin of Sodom was inhospitable and callous attitudes toward the needy stranger. It was a collapse of hospitality which was being condemned. You know, as I say that, my guess is that something is going on inside of you the same that it went inside of me. Because by the time I get to this stage and I preach a sermon, I've already gone through a week-long journey of fighting with God and fighting with myself. And part of the fight I went through is, come on. That cannot really be why God would destroy the city of Sodom. Because they were inhospitable. Because they closed up their hearts to people that they saw around them. And yet, this is at the heart of what God seems to be communicating again and again and again in His Word. That it matters at a really deep level to Him how we respond to the needs of others. It's not just a nice thing to do. It doesn't make us special people. It makes us His people by definition. It's how He distinguishes us from the rest of the world. Here's an interesting aspect of all this. In 1 Peter 4.9, it says, Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Later on in Romans 12.13, Paul writes, Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Even in the cases where Christians are being commanded to show hospitality to other Christians, he uses the same word, philozenias, which is stranger love. 
That's weird because he's saying, these are your brothers and sisters in your own Christian family, and yet what I'm commanding is that you show stranger love. What are the implications of this? Here's what I believe it means. It means don't just show hospitality to the Christians you know and like, but show hospitality even to Christians you've never met before, you don't know. They're not your friends. They're not at your church. And yet he says, show them the same kind of stranger love, even if they're not known to you, because they're known to me. If they are your brother and sister in Christ, that's bond enough already for you to open up your life to that person. Even in the case of Christian hospitality, it's not enough to say, I have people over from my church to my house all the time. God would say to that, that's wonderful, keep doing that. But biblical hospitality is more than having your friends over for supper. It's more than surrounding your table with people you already know and love. Even within the realm of Christian hospitality, the command of God is to show that hospitality to the Christian you don't know yet. Because it's so important to God that he sees evidence in our hearts that we know the love he showed us because before he had any reason to open his life to us, before he had any reason to know and love us, he poured out everything. He opened himself up to us. And when we show stranger love, we're doing to others what God did for us when he first knew us. Every last one of us began this journey as a total stranger to God. No legitimate claim on his time, his presence, his resources. And he still opened himself to us. I was so appreciative years ago when one of our visiting missionaries needed a place to stay. And I reached out to someone and said, would you house these these people? They had never met before, but they said, you know what? They're my brother and sister in Christ. The children will be like my children. And they opened their beautiful home up to this family. And that missionary partner would later report that the highlight of their whole visit to Chicago was the time they spent in that home with that family, being loved and invited into their lives and getting to know this new friend who would then become friend for life. Jesus says something similar to this idea when he was eating dinner at the home of a Pharisee. And he noticed that they were watching him very closely to see how he would act. And he also noticed, and this is such an interesting passage of scripture, he notices that the guests at this dinner banquet were jockeying for the best positions at the table. You know how it works, right? Like, who gets to sit where has a lot to do with status. So everybody was not there to eat a nice meal. They were there to basically elevate their position in the village. The host of this dinner banquet was no different. He had invited people who could either elevate him or reciprocate his kindness someday. This is the way the world does hospitality and fellowship. Everything we do has something in it for us. That's why the people that we invite into our lives are carefully vetted, aren't they? We decide who comes in and who doesn't. And Jesus, seeing all of this shallowness and superficiality, it grieved his heart and he couldn't remain silent. And he says to them, and this is him talking directly to his host, listen, when you give a luncheon or dinner, don't don't invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, don't be naive and use this verse to go, Mom, Dad, I was going to have you over, but Jesus said, I can't have you over. I've got to invite some poor people over. Don't, it's, that's silly. He's presuming that we, just as mammals, as humans, will always preferentially invite over those people we already know and love. Don't stop doing that. But he's seeing the shallowness of this dinner banquet. He says, this is not at all why I give people homes and food and resources. It's not what that was for. When I gave it to you, it wasn't so you could use it to further elevate your own position at the expense of other people's lives. I give you more than I give that person in the hope that you will make me known to the world by giving away what's yours because it's actually mine. 
What Jesus was teaching is that biblical hospitality is more, I'm not sure why that keeps happening, it's more than common hospitality. So you don't need to be a religious person, you don't need to know God to invite the people that you know and love into your house. The most irreligious, ungodly people in the world are still doing that every day. They're probably doing it more than Christians. But biblical hospitality intentionally seeks to open our homes, our lives up to people who have no legitimate claim over us because this is who God was when we were strangers to him. It's been observed that the structure of the American home and of our neighborhoods basically are designed to say one thing. Keep away from me. If I don't know you, you don't ever get to get close to me. It's worth noting that the pinnacle of American real estate is a home high on a hill in a gated community behind a long driveway not visible from the street. The pretentious wealthy want a large, large house that you can see as you drive by. The kind that causes car accidents. Oh my gosh, you know that kind of house? But the truly wealthy, they live so tucked away, you don't even know they're there. But they know they're there. That's how our country is physically built. That as you get more and more up the food chain, the more control, the more privacy, the more buffer you get from the stranger. Everything about our neighborhoods and our homes, and this is especially true of the suburbs, is designed to say that I can avoid contact with whom I don't want contact with. I get control over who has access to me and who I have to deal with. I was just thinking the other day how I installed a ring doorbell so that I don't even have to go to the door when someone's there. I already know they're coming. I'm like, shh, everyone, shh, shh. Do you remember the, Sebastian Maniscalco, who's, who's one of my favorite comedians, he has this bit where he says, remember in the old days, you'd be sitting around the house and all of a sudden the doorbell would ring and, and everyone's like, your dad would go, hey, drop what you're doing. We got company. We got company. It was a good thing when the doorbell rang. Everyone, your mom has a special coffee cake saved for the company, and everyone just drops what they're doing. They just hang out together. Now, the doorbell rings. What's your first thought? Oh, my God, what is this? Are you expecting someone? Did you call someone? Nobody welcomes the sound of the doorbell anymore. Nobody. Because if I didn't ask you to come, I don't want you here. This is not your house, it's my house, it's where I live. This is my sacred fortress. You don't get access unless I give it to you. That is everything in America right now. From the time we're children, this is what we're taught. Stranger danger. Now for children, that's a good lesson, especially in the world we're living in. Don't go, oh, honey, I'm sure that the candy's fine. Just take it from the nice stranger. You don't don't teach that, right? It's good to teach children stranger danger, but at some point, we've got to teach them that not every stranger is a threat to them. The worst part is that we're not children anymore, but we still believe this, don't we? Let's be honest. The vast majority of Americans still see the people they don't know as a potential threat first. That's our first instinct, is to begin with the assumption, you might be a danger to me. Here's the thing. Have you ever been lost in a public place far from home? And you're just trying to get someone to help you out, like, hey, excuse me, could you tell me where the nearest subway station is? It's something so harmless. But have you noticed, as you're trying to approach people, some of them, they see you about to ask them, what they're like, oh, no, I... Please, just, I, I don't want any of this. Any of what? I was just going to ask you where the nearest subway station is. I know, but I just don't want to deal with, please, just stay away from me. I don't like talking to people I don't know. And so that's what I expect. When I'm lost, and I travel a lot, and I'm lost a lot. <laughs> when I'm away from home, I need strangers all the time. And I find that I'm really becoming good at reading faces at figuring out who's going to be nice to me and who's not. Sometimes I'm wrong, and it's really shocking. But, but you know, you kind of look, and you go, this person will tell me. And what's such a beautiful surprise is when you walk up to a total stranger, you go, excuse me, and they go, oh, hi. 
Are you lost? Do you need something? And I, I, I actually don't know what to say. I, I'm lost for words because I'm expecting some sort of pushback. Instead, they're like, oh, how can I help you? I don't know what to do with that because it's so unusual. It's so shocking to me that it takes my words away. In his book, The Divine Commodity, author Sky Jatani, who actually lives just down the street in, in Wheaton area, he writes this. Today, every telephone ring, knock at the door, or alert from our inbox is not welcomed as a human-to-human connection, but merely an attempt to invade our personal zone and take some commodified part of me away. We instinctually assume that every stranger we meet has a hidden agenda. Now here's the truth. A lot of strangers you meet will have a hidden agenda. They'll be trying to work you, to play you. They will. And that's one of the risks we bear when we show stranger love, is that some of those strangers are exactly what we expected them to be. Somebody who's trying to take something from me which I haven't yet offered. And yet, Jesus throughout his teaching, says to us, that's a risk you have to be willing to take. I've been wrestling with what this means to me practically, what it means to us. Because I don't want to read about you in the news because you were naive and foolish and walked into some white panel van trying to share pumpkin bread with somebody who's parked in front of your street for too long. Don't be an idiot. But don't be so guarded that you think every person you don't know is out to get you. Or that your whole goal in life is to amass enough wealth, enough power, so that no one you don't want in your presence could ever get near you. I realize even in the small realm of Christian celebrity, Even at this conference, there were a couple names that were much bigger names than the others. And there were a couple of these guys that I've been reading their stuff for a while. I thought, I would like to somehow just walk up to that person. Hey, you're a fellow Christian just like me. I just want to tell you what your books have meant to me. And I realized that even in the Christian world, where this person's famous to me, but the average guy in the street has no idea who he is. And they've got layers of protection around them. They're done with their talk. They go to a green room. Then from the green room, they go to an undisclosed location in which an unmarked car takes them to the airport. And I'm like, I don't even know how to get to you. I don't know where you just went. You went off the stage behind this weird hidden door, and then I, you're gone. And I thought, this is our world. The higher you get, the less accessible you become. And we like it that way. We relish the fact that I don't ever have to be around anyone I didn't invite into my presence. Does that sound like the heart of the people who worship the servant king? Does that reflect the heart of the people who were saved when they had no right to ask to be saved? When they were so filthy that they could not approach the holy king of kings and beg an audience, and he gave them time and the gift of his life. Man, there's so much more to say, um, but maybe I don't need to say it to you. God's been saying it to me, and it's really been um, affecting me in a deep way. I don't want to just be convicted about this. I want to be converted about this. At the end of her talk, this is one part that I'm going to just shamelessly steal from Ann Voskamp, and then I'll add one little piece to the end of what she gave us. At the end of her talk, she stared us from the stage right in the eye and said, I'm going to give you a 30-day challenge. Let's call it a dare. I'm going to ask you for the next 30 days to be super intentional about growing in the biblical act and posture of stranger love, of hospitality toward those you did not invite into your life but whom God is sending. Because we may look for God where we expect to find him, but what if God is visiting us all the time in the face and in the flesh of a person we would rather not be around? Isn't that what he meant when he said, when you did it to the least of these, the ones you don't want to be around, you are actually doing it to me. You see the face of God 
in the face of a person you would rather not have to see. So I want to give you that 30-day challenge, and I want to ask if you would consider taking this very seriously. I got a head start on you because it was October 20th when God first did this in my life. And I'm noticing how much I have to grow in this. So I'll give you a few things you can do in the next 30 days to keep stretching your heart. First is see. I read about this Google Glass experiment at NYU where sociologists and psychologists put Google Glass. You know what that is? It's that thing that never quite took off, but it should have. These glasses with uh, augmented reality, and what they did is they put on a little thing that tracks your eye movements, and then they had these test subjects walk across one block of New York City, and they tracked what they looked at. And one of the surprising findings was, in general, most people don't look at people. They look at objects. And so it's the same amount of time spent looking at stuff as at people, even though people were crowding the streets. But then here's another thing they noticed. Those who were in lower income, self-described in that test pool, looked at people far longer, far more intently than those who were wealthy. They're trying to figure out what that means, and they, can't, they don't have conclusive proof. This is a, a sociological experiment, so you have to draw inferences. But one of the conclusions they're reaching is that the wealthier you get, the less you have to re- depend on anyone else. You don't need anyone, really, and so you're not, you're not training your eye to scan faces to see people because people are invisible. They're the same as objects. They're background scenery you pass while you're going from one place to another where you have control. And we do this every day. We engage in the objectification of our fellow human being, not by mistreating them, but by not even seeing them. I didn't realize until I got this challenge how much I do this every day, just by habit. You know that situation where you're pulling up to a red light and there's a gas station right at the corner and someone's waiting to turn on to traffic? And normally people just plug up, so it's like you have to wait three light changes to get out of that gas station. But what you're supposed to do is leave a little room before that driveway so that they can enter traffic from that that gas station without having to wait. And so every now and then, when I feel like a good person, I, I leave that gap and I just go, hey, go ahead. But once I give them that hand signal, I just look straight. What I started doing this week is looking at the person going, hey, I'm letting you in. How's your day going? I'm just looking at them, and they're like, why you, why you keep looking? I got it. I'm going to go. But I'm like, I just, this person that I'm intentionally trying to serve in some way, I'm not even noticing what they are. If I was the last human to see them alive before they disappeared through an alien abduction, and the FBI said, were they male or female? I'm like, I don't know. They were a driver. They were in, a, I think, a car. That's about all I would know. And so I've just begun to see, and this is my challenge to you. Will you see people? Do you remember the sixth sense? I see dead people. We don't even see living people. (laughs) Do you see people? The person who's taking your money at the store, who's acting like a machine. Like half the store clerks have been trained not to look at us either because they just don't want to be dehumanized anymore. I was a cashier once. I know what that feels like. So the first challenge is simply this. Don't look past people anymore. Make eye contact. See the humans around you. Because once in a while, Jesus will show up in that person's face. I shouldn't even soften it by saying once in a while. Because what Jesus said is, whenever you do this, it's me. The next challenge is to stop. Sometimes we see and then we move on. And I don't think it's practical to stop every single time. But once in a while, once you've seen a person, just take a moment to get a name. To just chat, to ask their story. It used to be that when I had a contractor at my house, I would give this person my garage code to come in and out so that I could go to work while they're working in my house unsupervised. 
that much openness and trust, and yet I couldn't tell you what color their hair was, what their first name was. It was like some guy, some plumber dude is doing my plumbing. And I left the house. And some other people that I read about really encourage and inspire me to do this, to really get a name. What's your name? How long have you been doing this? Do you like this work? When we see people, take a moment to humanize them, to, to show them that they're not just background scenery, but you have a real interest in who they are. And once in a while, when you see someone, you will detect distress. We human beings are unbelievably good at detecting distress in other people. We do this subconsciously without even trying. And when you detect distress, the normal instinct is to avoid it and not get involved. But once in a while, let the spirit of the living God prompt you to stop. That person who notices I'm lost and I'm about to ask him a question, and they try to cross to the other side of the subway station, don't be that person. When you don't have to be somewhere really urgently and you're driving past someone who's stranded on the road, you know, what I used to do is I used to lift up a prayer. I'm like, Lord, help that person get AAA quickly. And, you know, it's like, at least I'm not being totally callous. I'm praying for him. But I'm learning now that there's value if I'm not in a super big hurry to just stop and go, hey, you okay? Do you need to use my phone? Is there something I can do for you? I've done that a handful of times, and it's really remarkable how often they'll say, oh, my gosh, I've been praying that someone would stop. All I need is someone to take me to the gas station. Uh, I would need to borrow one of their gas cans. I just need like a gallon to get there. Could you help me? And when I do, they're blown away that someone will help. It's such a small thing. I'm only delayed like 20 minutes in my life. But for that person, it's an answer to prayer and the restoration of some idea that they're not alone in this universe. That there's a God who actually answers prayer, who looks out for us. Are you willing to stop? And you see how all these are related. When you've seen and you've stopped and you know that God is telling you to do something, will you be willing once in a while? And I say once in a while just because I think as we grow, you don't want to shoot for the fences and demand a home run every time. But just once in a while, as you feel that deep prompting, give yourself over to it. Say, God, use me. I know I'm going to be, I'm going to, I might miss my connecting flight. I might miss this very important appointment. But this person right now is having a crisis, and my presence in their life might be more important than whatever thing I'm rushing to next. Will you be willing to be delayed, inconvenienced, put out, sacrifice for another person because they have a need or a crisis right now? I don't say that you have to do this every time you come across a need. But once in a while, God will prompt you in a very strong way if you're listening. He'll tell you this is the one. This is the one for today. Do this right now. I'm learning to discern that. And it started some adventures already. I'm about to hop on a flight in a few hours to take my wife to Seattle for her one and a half year delayed 50th birthday present to go see the Seattle Seahawks in Lumen Field. Sadly, Russell got injured weeks before. But I'm going to sit next to a stranger on the plane. And I've got to tell you guys, I hate talking to strangers on a plane. I just hate it. I know as a pastor I shouldn't say that, I shouldn't feel that way, but I'm going to be honest with you. When I get on a plane, all I want to do is read a book or watch a movie and just zone out because I don't really get to do that a lot. I don't want to be with people. I don't want to be responsible for anyone. And yet, every time I sit on a plane next to a stranger, there's an opportunity to be what Jesus has called me to be. So I'm going to keep doing this the best I can to try to be attentive to Jesus. And I'll give you the last thing, which Anne didn't give, but I think is important is to share that with someone else. Not as a brag or a boast. Because when I hear your story of the way you ventured out and loved a stranger, it makes me think I should do that too. I can do that too. And when I hear the way that that stranger responded to you, 
the beautiful story that unfolds when you did that, it makes me want that story too. It makes me think, what's with me that I don't ever experience stuff like that? I want to be more like you. We share our story not to boast, but to inspire and encourage others that what you're afraid of doing is doable. It can be done. And sometimes when you do it, God shows up and he rocks your world and he gives you a story you would never have had. A new friend and experience. Something learned that wouldn't be yours if you had not responded in active obedience. And so we share our story because it's not just our story. It belongs to his kingdom. And these are the stories that should be repeated. So many of the horrible stories get repeated all the time in our world today. But these are the stories worth repeating, the ones that form our world. Will you take this there? Will you join with me in the next month being very attentive to Jesus and living this way? And if you will, will you go that extra mile and share with your church family in CG, maybe from this stage, maybe just tell a friend, You'd never believe what happened yesterday when it pulled my car over to help someone. As we wrap up, I want to give you a picture of the faraway land I hope we will all get to. That our love for the stranger, which really is our love for Jesus, will eventually get beyond single acts, 30-day dares, and become the way that we live so that we will not just do good things for for strangers, but we'll give the ultimate gift of bringing them into our very lives. There are people I would give a gift to that I may not want to call my friend and have in my home, to have a real relationship with. I think that breaks the heart of Jesus. And he's breaking my heart over it. I hope you'll break yours too. I think I've said enough this morning. I want to give you a chance to just sit in quiet with us right now. There's something he wants to say just to you, and I don't know what that's going to be. But let him say it. Receive it from him. If there's something you need to say back, a commitment, an apology, a yearning, say it. Just take a minute, and we'll wrap up in a closing song. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.